ever find yourself asking uh, this question, what difference will it make? What difference will it make? I remember slogging through matrix algebra in college, hours every week on these problem sets, late at night, regularly asking myself, what difference will this make, right? Why am I doing this every single week? You know, maybe in the workplace. I remember working at Merrill Lynch. They would have all these continuing education classes, and half the time I'm thinking, what difference will this make? I don't deal with any of this kind of work in my line of work. Talking with my wife who works at the hospital, policies, right? What difference will this make for the patient? We find ourselves asking that question often. Sometimes in sports, maybe your coaches made you do what seemed like pointless drills, you know, you remember the famous scene with the karate kid, right? Daniel Russo, who wants to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi is him out there waxing the cars and sanding the floor and doing all the other things. And he doesn't understand what the point of it is. It seems purposeless until he pulls out, you know, the big surprise. Well, friend, what about Christianity? Does Christianity make a difference? Right? Does it make a difference in the world? Does it make a difference in your own life? You know, one of the critiques often leveled against Christianity is that Christianity, in fact, makes no difference at all, right? Christian nations, as people refer to them, Christian nations seem to have the same problems as secular nations, right? There's corruption, there's fraud, there's theft, there's violence. And many point to those who gather in local churches on Sunday, like we are now, as being no different Right? than the rest of the world Monday through Saturday. So what do you think? Does Christianity make a difference? And I'm not simply talking sort of intellectually, like in, in thought, you know, going reading Aquinas or Augustine or something. I mean like practically at a street level, does it really make a difference? And does it for you? Well, friends, it's questions like this that actually bring us to the start of a new series, as Jeremy noted, in the book of James. Yes, James, and many of you are now breathing a sigh of relief, right? After 13 weeks wandering in the wilderness, we've actually arrived in the New Testament at something helpful and practical. So if we've gone from wandering in the wilderness, now we have arrived in the living room, right? Because if anything, James is really a book. For everyday life. So let me invite you to turn there now, the book of James. If you've got a Bible, just find your way toward the end of the New Testament. Go right after Hebrews, before 1 Peter. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles we provide in the seat back before you, you can find it, I think, on page 1011. 1011. And as you turn, just a bit of background, you know, James is both one of the most cherished and one of the most controversial books of the New Testament. It's controversial because It often feels, as we'll see this morning, like it lacks any obvious structure, any obvious cohesion. There are all these sort of sudden and abrupt transitions. And James only mentions Jesus twice and almost in passing. There are no direct references to the cross, to the resurrection, many of the themes that are so dominant in Paul's letters. Perhaps that explains why James is like the favorite of the Bible books for the Dalai Lama. Which also explains why many have looked at James and suggested it might even be at odds with Christianity. So some of you may know the great uh, reformer, Martin Luther, right? He referred to James as that epistle of straw 
And he went on to say other unkind things about the book of James, not denying it ought to be in the Bibles, but for the way in which it can confuse people possibly about the role of faith and works. Right? And despite all that controversy, though, it is also one of the most cherished books of the Bible. Right? If you know James, it's pithy. It's full of memorable quotes like, be doers of the word and not hearers, or to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Right? It's, it's punchy as well. It has the highest percentage of imperatives really of any New Testament book. Right? James clearly aims to instruct and to warn and to encourage. Right? He doesn't simply inform. And he rarely lingers long at any one topic. James knows how to make a point and move on. Right? I'm trying to take some lessons from James. Some of you know what it's like. Come on, Brad, 35 minutes in, we're still on point one. Move it along. Right? James is great at moving it along. And while a quick succession of topics can occasionally be a trouble for interpreters, right, what's the connection, it's actually a virtue for us as readers because it's memorable and it moves. And part of what makes it memorable is how picturesque it is. James is quick to draw upon images and illustrations. He'll talk about billowing seas and withering flowers and faces in mirrors and bits in horses' mouths, right? He, he sounds very much like a preacher, and the book, in some ways, reads a bit like a sermon, which makes it one of the most popular books of the Bible, right? Heavily quoted throughout Christian history. So last fall, we asked, right, how many of you have heard a sermon through Numbers? And I think there were two hands. How many of you have heard a sermon series through James? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot more hands. It's a favorite book of many. And friends, all that can contribute to its practicality, right? James can read much like Proverbs of the New Testament, there's no mistaking that the book is about authentic Christian devotion, which is to say it's about practical religion. That's what James gets to. So let's, with that, let's dive in. James 1.1. Let's start right there. We read James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now we'll stop right there. Uh, we're in that season uh, in our home where we're getting all of our Christmas cards returned to us. Does that happen to any of you? Like return to sender, apparently we had information wrong, addresses wrong, or maybe we even forgot to put an address on, right? Just lumped it in with all the others. Well, if James were to take this letter and deliver it down to the post office, it would also be marked return to sender because there's precious little info about the recipients of the letter, right? Who it's addressed to, where it's going uh, at the outset, right? No names, no specific places, None of the customary things we tend to find in the New Testament. Now, the author does introduce himself as James, likely the Lord's brother, Jesus Christ's brother, James. And given how Jewish the letter is, so, for example, in James 2.2, when we read the word assembly in English, the word actually is synagogue. It has heavy Jewish overtones, right? Given James' significant role in the early church there in Jerusalem, to think that it was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this, that would make sense. Which also makes sense because while James rarely references Jesus by name, right? Jesus' own words and his sermons, they're soaked throughout this letter. So though we don't see Jesus in the letter, we hear him all throughout the letter. So the James is to the New Testament at one level what Esther is to the Old Testament. And that actually, I think, is a good encouragement to some of us. And let me press maybe for a minute. Some of us here who are older siblings and who have younger siblings, 
Because one of the things we know about Jesus' other siblings is that while he was alive, they did not follow him. They actually rejected him. They did not believe in him, John 7, 5. They thought he was crazy. It wasn't, in fact, until after the resurrection when Jesus specifically appears, we read to James in 1 Corinthians 15, that James, the younger brother, seemed to have a change of heart to his older brother. And yet the fact that we hear so much of Jesus' words in this book is an indication that James must have heard a lot along the way from his older brother. And though it was that seed took no root initially, it would one day flourish. And so if you're a sibling here, an older sibling especially, you got younger siblings, just think about that and take that to heart of how the Lord might use just the words you share with another sibling. Maybe they're rejecting Jesus, but they might use those words one day to bear great fruit. But there's also another, I think, remarkable way in which uh, James refers to himself because he will regularly talk to his readers, and he loves the term brothers or beloved brothers. But notice when speaking about Jesus in one one, what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ, my bro, right? He doesn't say that. No, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So even for James, more important than that biological relationship is the spiritual relationship, right? They may be brothers by birth, but Jesus is his Lord in life, and that's what matters most, And so he's writing, notice, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Now that word dispersion can be used more spiritually to refer to both Jews and Greeks dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. So we read from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.1 refers to the elect exiles in the dispersion, those dispersed across modern-day Turkey. And that reference of a dispersion is likely referencing Jews and Gentiles. But that term is often used more technically just to refer specifically to ethnic Jews who've had to flee Israel, usually due to war or famine or persecution, and they themselves have been dispersed across the empire. And friends, I think that's likely the case here. I think when when he's referring to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, I think even that clue to 12 tribes, I think he has in reference largely ethnic Jews and speaking to them because one of the things we know from Acts chapter 8, is that after the stoning of Stephen, what happened? Saul ravaged the church. And as he did that, what happened? Jews were forced to flee Jerusalem. Jews would become Christians, that is, right? Uh, Jewish Christians, they'd been forced to flee Jerusalem. And if you read on in Acts 11, 19, we come to find that many of those traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And friends, those Jews would have, ethnic Jews, would have faced social isolation. They would have faced economic deprivation. They would have faced religious persecution, right? That was a wicked mix, which may explain why what the letter opens with this topic of trials. With this topic of trials. So look down from chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. 
and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. All right, so we're going to stop right there, and one of the things I want you to note at the outset is how the passage opens right there, verse 2, with this reference, what, to trials. There are various kinds of trials. To testing, the testing of their faith, and to steadfastness, right, what that testing produces. And notice those same three words, trial, test, and steadfastness, they show up again in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And so I know that the ESV links verse 12 to verse 13 and everything else that follows, but other modern translations like the CSB, the NIV, actually connect verse 12 back to what came before. And verse 13 is actually a new paragraph. And I think that's a good way to break it up, and which would mean that everything in between verse 2 and verse 12, which function as a kind of bookend on trials, everything in between is in some way related to this question of how they're facing trials. And I think if we're to try to sum up James's argument, it would be something like this, right? When it comes to trials, wisdom embraces God's purpose in order to receive God's promise. So just sort of in summary, right, James 1, 1 through 1, 12 In the midst of trial, wisdom embraces God's purposes in order to receive God's promises. And I think there's sort of four clear movements, and those are just going to serve as our four points. So if you're a note taker, right, check in. Here we go. Our four points. As it relates to trials, James is going to say first, reorient your perspective. Reorient your perspective. That's verses 2 to 4. And then he's going to say, secondly, refocus your prayers. Refocus your prayers, verses 5 to 8. Thirdly, then he's going to say, remember your position. Remember your position, verses 9 and 11. And then he's going to close in verse 12, rest in God's promise. Rest in God's promise. If you didn't get all those, don't worry. I'm going to repeat them, right? You'll get them, Lord willing, throughout the sermon. Okay, but first thing he leads out with, reorient your perspective. That's what James is saying, reorient your perspective. That's verses 2 to 4. Right there in verse 2, we see it. Count it, he says, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, of course, that's not what we would expect James to say or really anyone else to say. We would expect him to say, count it all joy, what? Well, count it all joy, right, when you win the lottery or have a baby or something like that. That we can count all joy. But when you're drowning in trials, that, James says, is what you're to count all joy. 
right? Not, not just joy, but all joy. And friends, that kind of perspective right there out of the gate, it's hard for us, isn't it? That kind of perspective, we quote it and we know we need to hear it because it's unnatural to us. It's not how we think about our trials. Now, when it comes to trials, what? We, we tend to think trials are some kind of aberration to our own lives. And we act like trials often are sort of freak occurrences. It's kind of like a volcanic eruption, right? You know they're rare and they're always supposed to happen someplace else. And so what happens? When they happen in our lives, too often we act surprised and shocked as if something strange were happening to us. Sound like 1 Peter 4, doesn't it? But notice James doesn't say, if you meet trials, right? As if there's some unlikely event. No, it's when you meet them. Because, friends, trials are inevitable. They're just part and parcel of the Christian life. So if you think about it, the first book of the Bible likely written was the book of Job. And what's the book of Job about? It's a book about suffering and trials and what it looks like to rest in God. Take Jesus' own life, right? Just look, think about Matthew and, and Matthew 2 and then to the close. And what is Jesus' life marked by? By suffering, by trial. Which is why James, I think, begins by calling us what, right? To reorient our perspective. Notice he doesn't say trials are all joy, but that we're to count them. Right? Or we're to consider them all joy. So he's not saying just pretend they're pleasurable or fake a good time or just you know, have a stiff upper lip. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about how we're to feel about them, rather how we're to think about them. And that is a hugely important distinction. Because friends, in the Christian life, what you know always trumps what you feel. Let me just say that again. Because this is where so many Christians, so many of us have a hard time, and this is where we get it backwards, right? Our feelings take the lead. But in the Christian life, what you know always trumps what you feel. Which means it's far more important, and what's far more important, I should say, than what you feel at church, right? About the style of music or the building, whatever. What's far more important than how you feel is what you've learned, Right? How has the word been rightly tongue, uh, tongue, sung, taught, and prayed? Right? That matters much more. Friends, feelings are fleeting. But knowledge, right? wisdom, well, that, James knows, that lasts a lifetime. And he tells us why we're to count it all joy. Verse 3, he gives the reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, that word testing is often used of of metals being refined. And so the testing of the faith is not meant to determine if someone has genuine faith, but it's rather to refine and purify the genuine faith that they have, such that that faith produces what? Steadfastness. I know that's not a word we use much, right, in a noun form at least. We don't use that word much. But it speaks to the quality of being firm, of being unwavering. So the NIV will translate it perseverance. The CSB will will call it endurance. And endurance is actually pretty close to the root meaning of the word. Because in the Greek it is the notion of someone who's bearing up under a heavy load. 
So this past week, I was talking with Jeremy Muller, and he was noting he was going to go on some backpacking trip. And he knew that what I tend to do sometimes is throw weight into a backpack and do stuff. And he's like, hey, do you think I might borrow that ruck pack sometimes? And I'm like, yeah, finally the youngins come to the old guys from some council, right? Um, and Jeremy knows, like Jeremy can run like a gazelle, like no problem there. But he's going to have a weighted backpack. He's going to be climbing mountains. He knows he needs resistance. And that resistance is going to be critical in his training if he's going to be able to perform when he's actually on the hike. Well, friends, it's no different with us, right? Like muscles that only grow stronger under strain, faith needs life strains and trials in order to grow stronger. As we read earlier in 1 Peter 1, it's what we know from Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, not because sufferings in and of themselves are good, it's rather what God can accomplish through them, right? That's what's good. Because we know that suffering produces endurance, Romans 5.3. That word endurance is the same word used for steadfastness here in James 1.3. And we don't want to toss out that training program, right? We don't want to cut that short. We want, verse 4, to let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? Well, so the result that they may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, See, what James is helping us to see is that we will never be where God wants us to be and where God means us to be and where he intends us to be unless we walk through trials. Trials, in that sense, are God's divinely designed resistance training program for you. Right? They're your own special program that God himself has written and he knows exactly how much resistance to give enough to make you stronger without making you crumble so trials in that sense are God's way of what of completing the work that he's begun in us and trials exist and this is what we have to how we have to reorient ourselves trials exist not because there's something wrong with us but it's to create something better in us And that's what James needs us to see. Again, reorienting our perspective. But friends, maintaining that outlook in the midst of life's hardships, friends, that requires wisdom. Wisdom to see life through God's eyes. Friends, wisdoms we often often don't have but desperately need. And that brings us to verses 5 through 8. Right In the midst of trials, James is saying, yes, step one, reorient your perspective But he's going to stay step two now, refocus your prayers. And this gets us into point two, refocus your prayers. Since we lack wisdom, James says, verse five, to that one, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, let him ask God could sound a bit like a suggestion. James throwing it out there. Listen, you guys, welcome to take it or leave it. It's actually an imperative. It's in a command. It's saying, no, you ought to, you must ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Friend, what is wisdom? But knowledge applied. Right? Wisdom is knowing how to walk through life amidst all the rocks and mud and confusion. Wisdom is knowing how to choose the right path when it's often not clear. And there aren't particular Bible verses you can just point to that say I obviously must go you know, route A as opposed to route B. 
But friends, wisdom, we don't want to think of it as, as simply a technique that helps us to make right choices and decisions. It's not about a technique. It's not a, a tool set in that sense so much as it's about having the character of mind and the character of heart that enables us to make right choices. And we desperately need the kind of wisdom that James is going to be offering us and that the Bible does. Because in this tangled mess, right, that is often our lives, it can feel like our lives have no clear purpose, no clear plan, right? Nothing is turning out exactly as we expected. You know, as Mike reminded us last week, theologically and finally I get, God's providence never frowns. And yet, in the course of our lives, as we're walking through the shadows and then in the valleys, it can feel and it can appear like God's providence is frowning. And when everything is turned upside down and when it is all just a tangled mess, we need wisdom to view the world through the lens of the Lord. And here's the wonderful thing. We're assured that if we ask God what? He gives generously, right? God's not stingy with his people. You know, at a, at a nearby subway, I won't mention the location, but at a subway in Fayetteville somewhere, uh, there are often two individuals that work behind the counter. And one of them is a little sour. And when I go and order a sandwich, she opens it up and the meat, she throws like a piece of meat on and she just takes it right down the counter. And I'm looking at it like, well, okay. Um, you know, and there's like a slice of lettuce, you know, and an olive. And then she wraps it up. And I'm like, I should have gone to a bakery and just gotten some bread, right? I just, there's not much there. But there are other days I go, and there's another woman who works. And for her, it's like a contest to see how much she can stuff inside that six-inch sandwich. And so I was there this week, and uh, it was a feast. I mean, like, She's trying to close it. It just doesn't close. I mean, there's so much in there. And friends, I mention that just to note that that is exactly what God is like. Right? He's not stingy with his people. He's overflowing with gratitude and grace towards his people. And he gives to all, notice verse 5, without reproach. Now, maybe you've had some of those professors, I know I've had, where you ask a question and they stare at you. And they look at you maybe through squinted eyes and furrowed brow. Or maybe they just shake their head and you feel like an idiot. Like, okay, that was a, perhaps a bad question. I should know that, right? But friends, James is saying when we come to God and ask of him, that's never how he responds to us, right? He doesn't mock us, doesn't shame us. He doesn't find fault with us. No, we can go to him without reproach. And we have echoes of Matthew, I think, 7-11. If you then, Jesus says, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, right? how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And yet even so, the sad reality is that God is far more willing to answer our prayers than we are to offer them. So sad, but friend, isn't that so true? So friend, ask, right? And keep asking with this promise that you've got a God who gives generously without reproach and take that to him and beg of him 
Plead for him in the moments of your trials. But he does give notice a condition. When we ask, we must ask, he says, in faith. Which is to say, verse 6, with no doubting. Because he says what? The doubting man is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, right? So like a wave in the midst of a storm. The wind blows, the wave's here one minute, it's there the next minute. There's no constancy, there's no stability. It's just helplessly driven by the whims of the wind. And that's the doubting man, who James says, verse 8, is what? Double-minded. The idea there, he's two-faced. So this is the kind of person who prays with one eye closed towards God, right? But he's not sure God's really going to come through. He's going to have to hedge his bets. So he prays with one eye closed towards God, but he keeps the other eye open toward the world. And in that way, he tries to keep a feet, uh, I should say, a foot in both worlds. So in Santa Cruz, California, where, where uh, my wife and I grew up, it's, it's one of the sailing capitals of the world, and my stepdad sailed a lot, and so I had to learn how to sail when my mom married him, and, and we'd go down there to the boat, and, and I learned, and they teach you in these little boats that look like bathtubs, literally, El Toro, these things are called El Toro, they're like little floating bathtubs with a little mainsail, and they're small. Um, and the boats in the harbor are big, and so the, the, the docks are large. And in order to get into the boat, like, you've got to walk over, and you've got to get, and you've got to, like, step down into the boat, right? But if you've ever done such a thing, what happens when you place one foot on the dock and lean in with one foot into the boat, right? And that's what would happen if some unsuspecting person wasn't instructed, right? They, they have one foot on the dock. They step one foot in that little El Toro, that little floating bathtub. The next thing you know, that bathtub starts to go out to sea. And they're like Jean-Claude Van Damme in the splits. Like, and they go into the water every time. Right? They're, uh, they're doing spiritual splits, if you will. And friends, that's so often what we do in this life, right? We've got one leg on the dock of God's word, and we've got another leg sort of looking out into the boat of the world. And God says to that one, so whatever, whatever image you like, right? One eye closed, one eye open, whatever image you like, or the you know, spiritual splits. Um, God says that one won't receive anything from the Lord, right? That way never ends well. You've got to keep both feet on the dock of the word trusting in him, And friends, that's not to say that our prayers will never be offered perfectly or purely or like just without any question or uncertainty. No, that's all of our prayers are going to be tinged in some way with such uncertainties. The difference is, though, with God, like we do, we go all in. We go all in with him. He has shown unwavering devotion to us. So the the question, my friends, is does the constancy... And do the fervor of your own prayers show such unwavering devotion and commitment and trust in him? All right, so in the midst of your trials, first reorient your perspective, right? You do that by remembering their purpose. Then you got to refocus your prayers. And friends, that brings us to verses 9 to 11. And here's one of the classic cases where if James is the preacher, right, he was up late at night editing his sermon, and he inadvertently cut a section and pasted it in the wrong place. Like, we're just trying to figure out, like, okay, he seems to have jumped the rails. Like, 
what exactly did 9-11 have to do with anything that comes before or after? But friends, if these Jewish Christians were those who had been forced to flee to the safety of Jerusalem, and if they had lost all their established social networks, right, if they had lost whatever employment and work they had had, and they're trying to recreate businesses for themselves, and now here they find themselves in Roman lands where ethnic Jews don't welcome them because now these individuals are Christians, right? And and in the minds of ethnic Jews, these Christians have now betrayed Judaism. And the Romans don't welcome them because, well, they're, they're not Gentiles and they don't worship the pantheon of Roman gods. And so they've got pressure on both sides, right? They're feeling squeezed from both sides. And they don't have a social and economic safety net, right? They're without any rights. And friends, in situations like that, it's easy to be exploited, right? Is that not true in our own land with illegal aliens, right? Easily to exploit them. And it seems that's what's happening here because James 2.6 will refer to the, later to the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court. And then James 5 verses 1 to 6 speak of the rich who live in luxury and self-indulgence and who hold back the wages of the workers. So it seems these Jewish Christians were perhaps being exploited by those with what? Wealth, with power, and with means. Which is why James is now going to say in 9 to 11, point three, right, what do you got to do next? Remember your position. Remember your position. Specifically, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. All right, friends, who are the people we think have made it in life? Right, maybe you just think back to that board game, right, called Life. And maybe you played that game as a kid or you played it with your kids or grandkids, right, where you spin the little wheel and you move your car throughout the board of life. You know, back in the day when, like, it was actually a great thing to have a car full of kids and, you know, men were blue and girls were pink and the rest. I digress. But you know the game. Okay. Um, where, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. What's the point of the game, right? Who wins? The one with the most money at the end, right? That's the point of the game. The one who wins is the one with the most money at the end. But James says, right, hey, time out. Like, hold up. You guys have got it all wrong. Like the flower of the grass. Yeah, it's beautiful. Wealth. It's a wonderful thing for a time until the searing heat of that Middle Eastern sun beats down on it and it withers and dies. One day it's here, the next day it's gone. James seems to be grabbing that image from Isaiah 40, verses 7 to 8. Jesus' own teaching, if you know, from Matthew 6.30. And friends, that's just the way it is with wealth. It's beautiful, yes, but that beauty is punctuated also by what? It's curse. It's brevity. Beauty punctuated by the curse of brevity. Friends, where is Sam Bankman fried? Freed. I knew that wasn't right. I think of SBF. Everyone calls him SBF. Sam, Sam Bankman Freed. Thank you. Where is that guy? Like the darling of the crypto world. Started this company in his 20s worth billions of dollars. Right? And now it's all just a house of cards. It's come crashing down. He's awaiting trial. Right? Now you talk about Sam Bankman Freed, right, in line with what? Names like Bernie Madoff. That's what happens with wealth. Or I was reading in the Wall Street Journal this week. Um, of, uh, of an old, older farmer. I shouldn't say old. He's 64. 
older farmer, fearful of a volatile stock and bond market, which we've seen. And so he, he worked to get into some supposedly safe private debt placements and quickly lost $900,000, nearly all his life savings. Friends, that's the problem with wealth. Whether it's through fraud or whether it's just through fate, right? Like, it is fleeting. We can't finally depend upon it and rest upon it. And that's what he wants his readers to know. So it is, when he refers to the rich, it's possible that James is referring to rich Christians, Because that word brother in verse 9, like in the Greek, it can modify both the lowly and the rich. So we could be referring to sort of lowly and poor Christians and rich and wealthy Christians. But again, given the context of the book, given James 2, 6, 7, 8, given James 5, 1 to 6, and just given the image of the flower that that passes and the scorching heat, like it seems to me that he's referring here to non-Christian rich. In which case, when he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation, it's a kind of withering irony. For God loves to what? To reverse the standards of our own world. Do you remember what Mary sang in her song, Luke 1, verse 52? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Right? It just captures Jesus' own teaching. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whomever humbles himself will be exalted. Which is why, friend, if you are here today and you are trusting in your wealth, trusting that in some way that wealth is an indicator that you've arrived, or that in some way because of that wealth you're now safe, you're now secure, James is saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It can't deliver you, and one day it will also desert you. Right? Money alone can't save marriages. It can't repair relationships. Money alone can't cure terminal cancer. It can't protect you from natural disaster. Right? And the, the most, one of the more important things we notice is we can't take it with us, and most importantly, Money can't pay the debts that we've incurred through the penalty of our own sins. Right? Money can't pay that debt. No amount of money can. Which is why if you've come this morning and, and you're maybe in some ways trusting in all that you have to get you through this life and, and somehow thinking that that has secured you in the next life, Jesus would have to say to you, James, the younger brother, would have to say to you, no, that's what Jesus is for. He is the one who can deal with our greatest debts. And that's the debt of our sin against a holy God. And Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners, paying the debt they rightly deserve and ought to have paid. And then he rose from the grave as testimony that God had accepted that payment of that debt. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father so that all who repent of their sins and who believe and place their faith in Christ, they can be forgiven. And they can know wealth with Christ beyond measure. That's the hope of the gospel. If you'd like to think about that, talk to the person who invited you, the person sitting next to you. Find someone at the doors as you go. We'd love to think with you more about what it would mean for you to follow this Jesus. Because James is saying it's not the financially rich 
that win at the game of life, right? It's the spiritually rich. So you may feel this morning poor financially, right? You may feel insignificant and powerless because you lack money, right? You lack status. And you may be tempted to think that money is going to be the solution to your problems. And that's what you're praying about. And that's what you're longing after. But James is saying the solution to your problem begins not with more money, but by remembering your position. Start there. That in Christ, you've already been raised up. And you're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. That you have, Ephesians 3, incalculable riches in Christ. That you have, as we read, that inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And nobody and nothing can take that away from you. That's the position you have in Christ. And that's what you must remember. And that's what you have to fix your eyes upon. Remember your position. But, of course, the danger is that in the midst of difficulty, we take, what, we take our eyes off the prize. We forget that position, which is why James, what does he do? He comes full circle in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man. Do you hear echoes of the Beatitudes there? It's a very similar language in, in the original. At any rate, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So James's last exhortation, right? You've, once you've reoriented your perspective and you've refocused your prayers and you've remembered your position, the thing left to do, point four, is to what? Rest in God's promise, right? That's it. Last point, verse 12, rest in God's promise. And what's that promise? James says, the crown of life. That day when life's trials will be passed, that day when death and mourning and crying and pain, right? That day when that's all but a distant memory. And the only thing we hear are the comforting words of our Savior, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And on that day we're crowned. And we are with him. And friends, that's not merely a wish, right? That's a promise, and there is, friends, nothing more certain than the promises of God's, right? We, we break promises all the time. We break them when it's inconvenient. Or we break them because as much as we'd like to keep them, we just don't have the power and the ability to ensure that we can do it. Athletes are like, yeah, we promise we're going to win this game. What are you doing? You can't promise that. You don't know. But the difference is, friends, God has the ability and the will, right, to make good on every promise that he's made to his children. So Christian, own that promise. If you're being tested and tried and hanging on, he's saying a crown awaits, a glorious day awaits, where you're going to hear the comforting words of your Savior, and there will be the celebration of angels, and you'll arrive to the applause and the acclamation of all the saints who've gone before, and they're all waiting to receive you. And more importantly, though, God himself will be there, and Christ himself will coronate you, and every trial and every hardship and every hurt and all the stings, those things will have faded away, and you will be kicking yourselves wondering, why did I ever doubt this God? Why did I ever disbelieve in him? And friends, all that's promised to those who love him. Friends, the shape of your life will be determined by the joys of your heart. And what's beautiful is that God doesn't merely promise 
the prize to those who obey him or fear him or submit to him, right? But to those who love him because God is love. The only truly lovely being there is. So I ask you, what trials do you face this morning? They could be relationally, friends, they could be maritally, they could be with roommates, they could be financially, right? It could be physically, it could be something to do with health. James has reminded us trials come in all shapes and forms and sizes. And the great risk for James's readers and the great risk for us is that we will misunderstand our trials and in misunderstanding them, we will waste them. They won't produce in us what God intends them to produce. For whatever they are, whatever trials we face, it can be easy to think of what? Trials as tokens of God's displeasure with us. When James is trying to help us see that they're actually a vote of God's confidence in us. They're not tokens of God's displeasure, but actually votes of his confidence And rightly understood, trials have a way, therefore, of sharpening the blunt edge of our own love for the Lord. Which is why we must first reorient our perspective, focus on their purpose, refocus our prayers, remember our position, and rest in God's promise. Friends, that's practical religion, according to James. That's religion that makes a difference. Will it for you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise that we can turn from a book of numbers, which was sweet and wonderful in its own way, and come here and just be jolted and be slapped around a little bit by James, who means lovingly to instruct and to shape and fashion and form us according to your good purposes and plans. And God, we pray that we would take your word to heart, that our trials would not be wasted, but they would fulfill and accomplish in us all that you intend them to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.